Well, good morning, church. Hope that you guys are doing well uh, today. Uh, This morning, uh, we have the opportunity to uh, say goodbye to John. Uh, Without this sounding like a weird breakup, uh, we are going to be concluding uh, John's gospel today. And I'm going to provide a summary, uh, somewhat of a, of a recap of all the things that, uh, that we've seen throughout uh, this wonderful gospel. I feel like John's been one of my closest friends over the last 18 months, really gotten to know John, I've read almost every commentary there is about John. So this is kind of a weird Sunday to now kind of put John to, uh, to the side here and move on. Um, but this morning, one of the things that um, I hope that you, uh, that you gather from our time kind of recapping this is that as we kind of study books of the Bible together as a church, um, it's always good to kind of stop and look back on things that the Lord has shown us throughout that particular study. Uh, we don't complete these books and put it on the shelf and say, okay, we've mastered John for the rest of our lives, now we can move on. But there's so much rich truth that God has shown us. It's just a good practice to go back and review notes, review some things that the Lord has, has, uh, has even taught us. But today, our journey comes to a close. And so if this is maybe your first time with us, this is a really good Sunday to be here because I'm going to try to preach 40 sermons and condense it into one uh, as we move through this. Uh, But John's Gospel is uh, one of the most popular and well-known books in all of the Bible. Uh, In fact, any poll of regular churchgoers will reveal that their favorite book of the Bible in the New Testament is the Gospel of John. Uh, You may not know this, uh, or maybe you you do know this because you've been to a few funerals, but John's gospel is the most popular selected book of the Bible or passage uh, when conducting a funeral. John's gospel also uh, includes some of the most popular verses in all of the Bible. You'll see John 3.16 all over the place. Even if you watch uh, some football later on this afternoon, you'll probably see it on some big sign out in the the crowds. Also, John 14.6 is very popular as well, Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then, of course, we have the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Now, what we've seen, though, over the last year and a half is that John's gospel is not only popular, it's not only loved, but it's also hard to exaggerate its importance, even within uh, its role kind of showing us who Jesus is. In fact, Martin Luther, one of the leaders in the Reformation, said this about John's gospel, that this is the unique, tender, genuine, chief gospel. Should a tyrant succeed in destroying the holy scriptures and only a single copy of the epistle to the Romans and the gospel according to John escape him, Christianity would be saved. That there's something that's indispensable about John's gospel because of of what it does for us in our relationship with Jesus. One of the things that we've seen in John's gospel is that it has the ability to speak and help new and young believers while at the same time challenging seasoned saints. And that's really hard to do when you're reading scripture. In fact, St. Augustine uh, said this about uh, John's gospel, that John's gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a child not to drown. This is why that a lot of new believers will begin their journey studying John first, so they don't drown kind of in the depth of Scripture like maybe Romans uh, will do. But it's also a book of the Bible that a lot of seasoned, mature saints will go to to be challenged by its rich theology and symbolism. 
And maybe even on a more personal level, I, I wonder what your testimony would be as it relates to John's gospel over the last 18 months. I, I so wish I could have kind of a, a sit-down conversation with each of you and just ask you the question, how has your view of Jesus changed over this journey? How has your love for Jesus, your belief in Jesus grown over the last 18 months? I personally have loved this book. I've loved kind of each week kind of taking a deep dive into scripture and, and just seeing how the Lord has, has met me there and just bringing that into the pulpit each week. I've enjoyed being our tour guide, if you will, uh, kind of traveling through the rich truths in this gospel. And so uh, it's difficult to kind of land the plane on this long sermon series. But what I want to do this morning is I want to provide six takeaways from John's gospel. These are I think six aspects that I hope that you remember as it, relates, uh, to, as it relates to John's gospel. Here's the first thing that I hope that you remember. Um, number one is that John's gospel is drastically unique compared to the synoptic gospels, compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the, the first thing that, that we saw about John's gospel being different than the other gospel writers is his overall focus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their focus is to try to highlight all the things that Jesus said, all the things that Jesus did. But John's focus is different. John's, uh, pre he was preoccupied with answering the question, who is Jesus? He's kind of obsessed with the identity of Christ. And so John doesn't necessarily provide this comprehensive summary or overview of Jesus's life. He doesn't get hung up on all the details surrounding um, Jesus's life, but he wants to get at the identity of Christ. And so you can kind of sum it up this way, that Matthew emphasizes Jesus's kingship, Mark emphasizes Jesus's servanthood, Luke emphasizes Jesus's kind of humanity, and John emphasizes Jesus's godhood. And so the overall focus is different, but also there's some uh, specific examples of how he's different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. For example, John did not include the nativity story, which is interesting this time of year. John begins in John chapter 1, uh, going farther back than the manger, and he takes us all the way to eternity past. He starts off using this phrase, in the beginning, that type of language is used intentionally because John makes a direct link between the nature of God and the nature of the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. As we've seen also, John also has emphasized the relational settings of Jesus and not necessarily the, the teaching settings of Jesus. We don't have a lot of Jesus's um, monologues or his parables or his stories like we do in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Rather, we have these long conversations, these, these symbolic discourses that Jesus has with so many characters throughout this gospel. John's trying to show us that Jesus is personal. He's relational. Jesus is right here, someone that you can talk to and, and have this interactive relationship with. But we don't have those concise sayings like you'll find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John also does not include uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's actual baptism. You won't find Jesus casting out any demons in, his, in John's gospel. There's no mention of Jesus's transfiguration. There's no uh, Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. But what you'll find in John's gospel are six unique miracles that aren't in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. John also includes, what's I think unique to John, is the farewell discourse. 
chapters 13 through 17. Some of my favorite aspects of John's gospel is only included in this gospel. We also see some interesting interactions with John the Baptist. And then I'll point out one other distinctive about John is, is how much time he spends on, on Jesus's private ministry. Uh, John highlights Jesus's public ministry towards the Jews and towards kind of different people in chapters 1 through 12, but he spends chapters 13 through 21 kind of helping his disciples and his followers get ready for this next chapter. Now, why, why am I spending so much time reviewing the distinctives of John's gospel? Well, if I could just maybe encourage you this morning on your own personal Bible reading, I would just maybe state the obvious this morning, and, and that is that you do not need a seminary degree in order to identify some of these unique characteristics that I just mentioned. Like there's nothing uh, extra special about seminary in order to kind of identify some of these aspects of John's gospel. All you need is time, intentionality, and what I'll call this this wonder-seeking posture towards God's, towards God's word. Do you know what I mean by that? That this wonder-seeking posture that so many of our kids have during the Christmas season, that so many people have when maybe they go to Disney World and, and they just want to get lost in something bigger than themselves. This, this wonder of, of wanting and anticipating, just being wowed and being amazed at something. Like, I think we need to have that type of posture as it relates to approaching God in his word. That John shows us kind of the, the depths of all that's in the, the, the word of God. And for us to approach it kind of with this posture of God, show me something new. God, fill me with wonder. God, amaze me with something fresh about who you are. And not in, a, in an academic type of exercise, but in the spirit of increasing our awe and our worship of who Jesus actually is. I think John challenges us and he, he beckons us to go deeper into God's word. There's so much in here. And I just want to challenge you this morning. Like, don't, don't settle for the kiddie pool section of your time in the word. Don't settle for kind of quick hitters or a type of microwavable relationship with the Lord. I want to challenge you. I think John would tell us, go to the deep end of, of the mystery of God, of the character of God, of, of all the things that God's word provides for us. And of course, the challenge is it takes time. It takes intentionality. It takes this sense of, God, I, I want to create some space for you to work in my life so that my time with you is slow and, it, and it just, it's, it's a type of lingering with who he is. So I think John challenges us with that. Secondly, the other thing I want to point out about John's gospel is that it is a cave filled with theological treasure. I don't know how else to describe this, but it seems like we couldn't go a chapter without being confronted with a rich, dense, robust theological topic. I mean, it's all over the place. And this is another unique aspect of John's gospel compared to uh, maybe Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who are much more concerned about the setting and the context, the historical context. John is much more concerned with theology. Sometimes you don't even know where we are in John's gospel and, and what Jesus is exactly doing. But, but you, what you are uh, shown is all kinds of different doctrines and rich theology. Let me give you a couple of examples of what we've seen Number one, John um, has taught us the, the role of, of God within salvation, God's election. 
In other words, God first chooses us before we choose him. I don't think there's another gospel writer that provides greater detail than John. We saw this in uh, chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus said that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. We also saw uh, the security of the believer in chapter 10, verse 29, that my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one shall snatch them out of my Father's hand. And even there's there's an emphasis on God's role in salvation, John does balance things out by talking about our responsibility, that we need to believe, that we need to choose to remain in the vine, John chapter 15. But on top of this, we've also seen a pretty full-blown doctrine of the Trinity. Again, we don't find this in really the other gospel writers as robust as John, And specifically in John chapter 14, Jesus insists that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. And then a few verses later, he he turns the corner and talks about how the Holy Spirit is going to come as this this other counselor and comforter who's going to do some of the same things as Jesus has done. So right there in that chapter, you have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit. You have one God in three persons with different roles yet maintaining equality. On top of that, you have um, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. This is very clear. I think in chapters 14 through 16, John provides this in-depth job description of the Holy Spirit, helps to answer what in the world does the Holy Spirit even do in our lives, And he provides these five specific roles that we saw, that the Holy Spirit is a comforter for God's people. The Holy Spirit is an interpreter of God's word. Holy Spirit is a witness of Jesus. He's drawing attention to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is a prosecutor, one who convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, of God's judgment. And the Holy Spirit is a guide, someone who guides us into uh, God's truth. And then another doctrine that I think is, is pretty central in, this, in John's gospel is uh, salvation or soteriology. John clearly wants people to be saved. I mean, we know that's the purpose statement uh, of John's gospel that the children kind of uh, recited for us today. He, he's writing all of these things so that we may believe in Jesus and find life in his name. And so all over the place, John just kind of sprinkles these, these different symbols and imagery and, and sayings of salvation. We saw this in chapter 3 with the conversation with Nicodemus to be born again. We saw in chapter 4 with the woman at the well to drink of the living water that will never run dry. We saw in chapter 6 the need to consume and be fully dependent upon the life and death of Jesus. And of course, we saw it all throughout. One of John's favorite phrases in talking about uh, the the death of Jesus is this phrase, being lifted up. That Jesus being lifted up on the cross is, is a phrase referencing Jesus dying on the cross in the place of sinners. And then one of the unique features of this, and this is unique to John compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that John has highlighted the the substitutionary nature of of salvation, of Jesus' death on the cross. In other words, Jesus didn't just die for believers. He didn't just die as an example for believers, but Jesus died in the place of sinners. That for Jesus, he, he's taking our penalty. He's taking uh, the, the wrath of God that he absorbed that, that should have been reserved for us. 
We saw this in, in all kinds of different places throughout the last couple of chapters, but we saw this maybe most clearly in Barabbas. That Barabbas is a, a character in John's gospel that we can all relate with. Barabbas, who was a murderer, who uh, deserved condemnation, deserved death, deserved the chains. And yet because Jesus took his place, Barabbas was able to walk free. And that's, that's true for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, that because of our sin, we deserve death, we deserve condemnation, we deserve the chains of sin. And yet because Jesus died in our place, we are able to walk free. I think John is, is showing us all of these rich theological truths almost on every page because he's trying to tell us that your theology matters. Like as A.W. Tozer has said, what you think about God is the most important thing about who you are. Like your feelings about God are important and, and they might be real, but your feelings cannot be authoritative in how you live your life. Like your feelings cannot dictate the decisions that you make. Our feelings are too unreliable. But our theology, our, our knowledge about God, God's word, we anchor our, our decision-making, we anchor even our feelings into the truth of God's word. Now for John, he, he wants us to believe in Jesus. Clearly, that's his purpose statement. But he wants us to believe in the right kind of Jesus. He wants us to believe in the biblical Jesus. That's why he's, he's surrounded his gospel with, with these, these rich theologies and different doctrines. I think simply put, for John, orthodoxy, which is right thinking, leads to orthopraxy, which is right living or right conduct. And I hope you've been edified by the things that we've seen in John's gospel. I hope that you've even been challenged in a, in a greater way to know what you believe within the Christian faith. So on top of this, the, the third thing that I'll point out, this is related to uh, the theology, but it deserves a point in and of itself, is the driving force of Christology. John, again, is just obsessed with answering the question, who is Jesus? We see even in the beginning, John chapter 1, John clearly and explicitly identifies Jesus with God. He does it in chapter 20, verse 28, when Thomas sees Jesus, he says, this is my Lord and my God. But on top of that, John gets a little bit creative in trying to show us kind of his Christology. He shows us who Jesus is through Jesus' works and through Jesus' words. And this is maybe one of my favorite aspects of John's gospel is the looking at the seven signs or the seven kind of miracles of Jesus throughout this gospel and we looked at how the, the number seven for the Jewish people represented completion or perfection. John specifically highlights seven miracles here to show that Jesus has perfectly fulfilled everything that the old covenant lacked. Jesus did way more than seven miracles. He did over 40 that are recorded throughout the other gospels. But these seven, each of them showing us a different way, that Jesus has come and he's fulfilled and replaced the old covenant. John wants us to know that only God can do these miracles and these types of works. And yet not only through Jesus' works, but also through his words, we saw these seven I am statements. Again, that number seven being significant uh, for John. But even the formula that Jesus uses here, the I am formula, is a God claim. 
If you remember back in Exodus, when God selected Moses to be kind of the spokesperson, the one who is going to go and confront Pharaoh to let God's people go, Moses asked God, well, if, if they ask me who sent me, who should I say? And God says, say, I am who I am sent you. And so that has become kind of a, a claim of deity that Jesus picks up on. And he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate and so on and so forth to show us that he is God. And I think what we've learned here, and specifically through these I am statements, is we've seen the sufficiency and the beauty of Jesus in some really unique ways. And when you take each of these I am statements and you apply it personally in your life, what we've learned is that Jesus and Jesus alone is what satisfies our hungry souls. Him being the bread of life, he is what satisfies us and fulfills every longing. Jesus being the light of the world, Jesus is our light in the midst of wandering through the darkness of our lives. That Jesus is the gate, he's the, the means by which we enter into the fold of God's loving family. It's only through him. That Jesus is the good shepherd, he's the one that cares for you, who protects you, who leads you, and who feeds you. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's the one who offers eternal life because he's defeated our enemy. He's defeated sin and he's defeated death. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That we only have this relationship with the Father. We, we only enter into heaven by trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone. That Jesus is the true vine. That we only produce fruit. We're only effective as followers of Jesus in our ability to remain in Christ, to stay connected with him. Look, I, I hope throughout our journey in John that, that, that you have been wowed and stunned by how amazing Jesus is. I hope you've had moments like I have of, of reading something or learning something and pausing and being like, no, no, that can't be right. Jesus can't be that amazing. Like, like thinking through all of these different aspects of who Christ is for you. Ha have you concluded like, oh my goodness, like this is the savior of the universe. Like this is the one who has died in my place and yet he is this incredible. Kind of that, that jaw-dropping moment of all that, that Christ is, he is for you. And this is kind of a challenge for us when you think about how deep your Christology is. Because I think most people... In this world, they might know only three things about Jesus. Maybe the average person, maybe your, your neighbor or your coworker, they might know that Jesus was born in a manger, that Jesus died on some cross, and that Jesus uh, was raised to life. Right? And those are three important things, but they might only be, you know, people who go to church on Christmas uh, and, and Easter. And those are foundational truths. But John would say there's so much more. Like, go deeper, build out your Christology of all that Jesus actually is. And again, it's not to increase your head knowledge. It's not to, uh, to impress your family and friends over Christmas with, with kind of fun facts about Jesus, but to build your Christology because it will build your worship and, and your devotion to who Jesus actually is. Like we wonder, like, why don't I love Jesus more? Why am I not more faithful to him? Why don't I trust him in a deeper way when the trials of life come at me? Well, I have to, I have to wonder, how deep is your Christology? 
What, what kind of promises and truths do you hold tightly in your heart that you can retrieve at any given notice because you have plummeted the depths of who Christ is? See, John is, is beckoning us. He's inviting us every day, search the scriptures to find out who Jesus is because there's an endless amount of truth that will warm your heart day in and day out. Huge theme of John. Related to this, uh, number four here, another thing to point out, and okay, this is probably my favorite part of John's gospel, is these life-changing encounters, right? This is so unique to John. And like the perspective, and this is the benefit of of studying a a book verse by verse, the perspective of of John's gospel is totally different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke as it relates to who's on trial, really. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you read it, it's Jesus who's on trial. It's Jesus who's constantly defending himself before the religious leaders, constantly defending himself before the crowds, constantly defending himself before Pontius Pilate and even the disciples from time to time. But John is different because John, Jesus is not on trial. The world is on trial. And John will call to the stand these different witnesses, these different characters, these, these individuals who have these conversations with Jesus, and through John's kind of wonderful work, he will allow these witnesses to make these definitive statements about Jesus's messianic identity. And, and it's absolutely fascinating, that, that type of perspective. Very rarely do you see Jesus defending himself in John's gospel. And I love this part because aren't these characters so easy to relate with? Like, don't you find your story in so many of these people? It's amazing to see, like, Jesus at work, how impactful he is about invading the deep places of the heart and exposing what's on the throne of their hearts. We saw this in chapter 1 with Nathaniel, who was wrestling with his doubts, and Jesus entered into that space. We saw this in chapter 3 with Nicodemus, who was trusting in his own religious performance to save him. We saw this in chapter four with the woman at the well who was gripped with her own shame, searching for significance in relationships. Jesus enters into that space. We saw this at the end of chapter four with the official who was on his own journey of faith and trust. We saw it in chapter nine with the blind man, with Mary and Martha in chapter 11, with the religious leaders all throughout this gospel. We saw this with Pontius Pilate. We saw it with Judas. We saw it with Peter. We saw it with with all of the, the different disciples. And this strategy by John is so effective. And I don't know if you felt this throughout our time, but it's so effective because John like closes the gap, the the distance between what we feel and what the word of God is actually saying. Like sometimes we can sit here in 2019. And we read God's word and it's like, I know that's true. And I know that was true 2,000 years ago, but we wonder how is that true for me today in my personal life? All right, we ask those questions because sometimes we feel that real distance. Well, I think this strategy that John has used is so effective because it throws us into the narrative. It allows us to, to kind of find our place in the story of John's gospel where we, we ask different questions. Like, like we look at these conversations and these interactions and we move from asking the question, what will the woman at the well do with Jesus? How will she respond to Jesus? 
And by getting lost in that story and by relating with the woman at the well, by the end of John chapter 4, we start to ask a different question. Not what will this woman do with Jesus, but we start asking the question, what will I do with Jesus? How will I respond to Jesus and what he is saying here? Right? Because in that conversation, this woman is clearly just, just gripped with her own shame, looking for, for, for significance, looking for her own worth. And yet Jesus enters into her story and, and identifies what was on the throne of her heart, invades that, offers healing and offers her that living water to set her free. And, and by diving into that story, we quickly realize that, wait, I'm the one with the shame. I'm the one with mistakes from my past. I'm the one who's searching for significance and purpose and worth and maybe all the wrong places. And so the question then becomes, what will I do with Jesus? And it's so fascinating to be able to kind of trace all of these different conversations because there's not a person in this room who can't find themselves in John's gospel. Okay, I think we take a step back and and I think what John is trying to tell us is that this relationship with Jesus is meant to be interactive. This relationship with Jesus is meant to be in the deep places of your heart. Jesus wants that throne in your heart. He wants to kick off whatever else you, you've been putting up there, wherever else you've been trying to find your identity and your significance. Jesus wants that place. He's not going to settle being your ticket to heaven and then for you to put him on this shelf to collect dust until you die. Jesus wants so much more than that. And so the question I think we have to ask ourselves is if Jesus wants to enter into the space of my heart that's most deep, that, that's maybe most uncomfortable, and if I'm not regularly and consistently experiencing Jesus do that, then you have to ask yourself, what kinds of walls are up in your life? that are stiff-arming Jesus from interacting with you at that level? Like, like, what are those barriers for you? Is it sin? Maybe it's unconfessed sin, sin you haven't repented of. Maybe it's doubts, certain doubts, questions about the faith that you're wrestling with. Maybe it's pain that you're experiencing in this life that's serving as a wall. Maybe it's busyness. You don't have time to, to listen to Jesus interact with you at that level. Or maybe it's something else. I just want to ask that question for you. Even as you think about Jesus during the Christmas season, don't settle for this surface, superficial interaction with Jesus. Some of those quick-hitting conversations that you have and you move on with your day. Jesus wants to get to that space in your heart that's most uncomfortable, most convicting, but it, to, in order to give you life. He wants to expose those idols he wants to connect his promises and the truth of his word to your life personally. And it's up to us in order to say yes to that invitation. I think part of this is, is also a warning. I think, yeah, we've learned from the woman at the well. We've learned from Nicodemus. We've learned from all these people. But even take the people who rejected Jesus. Take Judas. Take Pontius Pilate. Some of those individuals who wanted nothing to do with Jesus having kind of the, the space deep within their hearts. Remember Pontius Pilate? They didn't want Jesus going there, right? He's stiff-arming Jesus, kind of pushing him off to the side. We know how it ends for those individuals. And so for us, even over this Christmas season, to say yes 
to what Jesus is doing and saying within our hearts. Number five here, the fifth thing I'll point out, another aspect to just remember about John's gospel is the indispensable quality of a true Christian, which is love. Love is a dominant theme throughout John's gospel. We saw it um, a little bit um, uh, early on in the gospel, the first 12 chapters, love shows up 12 different times. But then once you get to that last discourse, starting at the last supper and on, chapters 13 through, 20, through 21, love shows up 45 different times. That we find Jesus teaching on love over and over and over again. John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So we find Jesus teaching on this concept of love, but Jesus also demonstrates what love actually is and what it looks like. Most obviously, we could go to the cross, right? John 3, 16, this is a way to display his love for the world. But if you remember, John chapter 13 was somewhat of a startling scene, that we have the scene of the Last Supper and we find the Son of God who humbles himself and he takes on the form of a servant by washing the dirty feet of his disciples. And if you remember what's so startling about that is that was on the heels of the disciples debating on who is the greatest disciple among them. That's when Jesus enters into that space and shows them, according to chapter 13, verse 1, what love actually looks like, that he loves them until the end. We also saw love uh, being put on display, even for us, in our unity with one another. Remember uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, this otherworldly unity that is ultimately uh, rooting ourselves in who we are in Jesus does not mean uniformity, does not mean that we all think the same way or we all look the same way. But this type of unity is so rooted in Jesus that it changes how we handle our differences. That, that the way that we handle our differences is so countercultural, so different than the world, that this actually becomes one of the most powerful evangelistic tools that we have in the church today because we love one another. And I think we can take a step back from that. And I think what we learn is that if you claim to know and believe in Jesus, then one of the chief characteristics of your life should be your love for one another, should be this sacrificial, this humble, this sincere love for those around you. In fact, I, I think if, if John was up here and, and he would say, look, if, if you claim to know Jesus and believe in Jesus, but you aren't consistently loving those around you, I think John would ask the question, is your faith actually genuine? Is your faith actually real? Like the way that you treat other people is actually contradicting what you claim to believe to be true. And so John's gospel challenges us, not just with theology, not just with what we know up here, but in how we actually live out uh, our love for those around us. And that is a true challenge, especially this time of year. Now, finally, the last thing that I'll point out here, number six, I think is really important to know, is the impossibility of staying neutral towards Jesus. 
John does something that none of the other gospels do, and that is he clearly provides his purpose statement. He wants people to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that by leaving we may have life in his name. And this is why he emphasizes Christology all over the place, because he wants you to believe in Jesus. In fact, uh, apart from the, the words Jesus and God, the most commonly used word by John, outside of the and some of those other words, is the word belief or believe. It shows up 98 different times in John's gospel. And you compare 98 occurrences to only 34 from Matthew, Mark, and Luke combined. And we see the emphasis that John has on you making a decision about Jesus, that John is constantly driving us to make a decision about Christ. And, and for John, you only have two options. You can either believe in him and accept him, or you reject him by not believing in him, that you cannot stay neutral. You can't stay on the fence about what to do with Christ. We saw that with Pilate. Pilate tried to do that. We know how that ended for him. And so for us to even consider what, what's the driving force, what's the purpose of John, wants to move you into believing in Jesus for the first time in order to find salvation, or he wants to deepen your belief in Jesus, because we need that even as followers of Jesus as we battle the sin of unbelief. And so this whole purpose is why John selected the miracles he selected, why he selected the teachings of Jesus and the conversations that, that we see Jesus having. But also, John tries to kind of woo us into believing in Jesus by talking about this idea of experiencing life to the fullest now and eternal life forevermore. This is another big theme of John. The word life appears 36 different times, the most out of any book in the New Testament. And, and I wonder, why is that? Why does he emphasize life so much, life to the fullest now and forevermore? It's because when you believe in Jesus, that is exactly what you receive. You receive life to the fullest now, and you receive life for all of eternity with Jesus Christ forever and ever. That your belief in Jesus is the mechanism by which you experience the forgiveness of your sins. And the result of that is that you finally have this right relationship with your creator. That because of your belief in Jesus and all the things that are true about Jesus are true about you, that you are freed from the bondage of sin, that you're able to genuinely love those around you, that you're able to experience true joy that's not dependent upon your circumstances, that you're able to have purpose in life to know Jesus and to make him known to those around you, all of those things are true because of your belief in Jesus. Look, is there anything better than knowing Jesus, who is the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the King of kings, and being assured that you will be with him forever and ever and ever, and that will never be taken away from you. And John's saying, look, that can be true for you if you put your faith and your belief in Jesus. So my prayer over the last 18 months has been, God, would you give generously the gift of faith to, for those to believe in Jesus for the first time. And God, would you give us a deeper belief in who Christ is? Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for the wonderful truth that 
uh, Lord, that you have shown us, that you have revealed to us. God, we come to you every Sunday, and I know our prayer is, God, we, we can't do this alone. We can't study this book on our own strength and our own ability. We need your spirit to guide us, to reveal things, to, to show us Jesus. And so, God, thank you for faithfully feeding us week in and week out. God, I pray as we, as we put John um, to the side and, and, Lord, we move on to other things, Lord, I pray that you would continue to invite us into your word, that you continue to give us an anticipation and an awe of all the truth that is found in here, that we may look more and more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.